Hello listeners, welcome to the final episode of Uni Talks. In this episode, Zaid, an aspiring English student, talks to Shahada Bari, a lecturer in English at Queen Mary University. Stay tuned for discussions on literature, learning and London. Also in this episode, the admissions agony aunts from King's College London give a sackful of handy hints about what to do when you're not sure of the career you want to go into after studying. We hope you enjoy this episode. Now over to Zaid. Hi, I'm Zaid. Welcome to the Uni Talks podcast, brought to you by Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. My name is Zaid, I'm 17 years old and I'm from Tower Hamlets. Right now I'm studying three A-levels which are English Literature, Media Studies and History A-levels. Well, I'd like to go to university because it's a personal goal of mine to graduate. It's something I've always looked forward to seeing like my cousins graduate, even my mother, she graduated last year after having four children so that I'm very proud of her too. So I want to follow in her footsteps and just make my family proud. Um, I want to study English because it's always been that standout subject for me, the one that I'm good at mostly. Um, every English essay I do, I enjoy writing it um, and I love reading as well. So. It just seems like the perfect subject for me. Um, I like to read a lot of the books like Frankenstein, Macbeth, the ones that we studied in our GCSE anthology. But my favourite book by far is The Inspector Falls. Um, it's because of the socialist message it sends out about um, everyone caring for each other, and especially being from Tower Hamlets where there's a lot of poverty and stuff. It kind of makes you feel valued. It makes the whole community feel like together. So we're just walking up to Globe Road now. Um, on the way to the University of Queen Mary's to interview Dr. Shahid Obari. Um, I've been past Queen Mary's a lot, but I haven't actually been inside and I'm quite curious to see what it's like, but I'm quite interested to see what Dr. Shahida has to answer to my questions. By seeing a few of her lectures, she's quite an academic, she answers in a lot of detail and she's very strong in her views. So I do think that um, that's going to be quite interesting to see what she answers. And especially for the third part of my questions, I have a surprise university style question for her. So I'm quite interested to see how she answers that because it will put her on the spot. So we're just approaching Queen Mary's University. There's a big flag in front of me that lets me know that I'm here. It's a nice a garden area kind of, there's like a lot of flowers here. Um, and the building is bigger than I expected it to be. But I haven't seen it this close up before. I'm Shahada. Hi, my name is Zaid, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you Zaid, well you've got cold hands but warm heart hopefully. Hi, so do you mind introducing yourself and talking more about your role here at Queen Mary University London? Um, you sort of introduced me, I'm a lecturer, I'm a, a senior lecturer at Queen Mary University of London. My name is Shahada Bari, so I work in English and philosophy. So what did you study at university and which university did you study at? So I studied English literature at the University of Cambridge. I went to a college called King's College because of course the University of Cambridge is divided into colleges. Um, and I went there because I loved a writer called E.M. Forster, who also uh, studied at King's College Cambridge and taught there. Um, and so I sort of wanted to see where he lived and where his work was, and it's a very beautiful college. What stood out to you most about the course you studied at university? When I got to university, I'd been, before that, I'd been at a fairly terrible state school, and um, I'd been really lucky in having wonderful teachers, but I hadn't read very much... Um, beyond 20th century literature, apart from my interest, my own private interests in the Romantics. And so when I got there, I realised 
the historical scope of literature. So I studied lots of kind of early medieval texts um, and I understood literature in a more global sense. So I read beyond Britain as well. Um, so that struck me. Uh, the thing I loved most about studying at university was just access to libraries, libraries upon libraries upon libraries. And it just felt like a wealth of riches for somebody who loves books. When you go to university, the libraries are, are like a dream. When did you decide that you wanted to become an academic? I, I was so geeky. Um, you look far too cool, Zaid, to be as geeky as me. But perhaps you'll correct me. But I, at school and at, and at college, I just, I didn't just love reading. I loved, I loved homework. I loved work. So I loved writing essays. I loved asking questions and finding the right words to answer difficult questions. And I loved finding stuff out. Um, and I'm still like that. And, and um, I'm less ashamed of it now than I was when I was about 14, 15. When I was studying at university on my undergraduate level, I just thought, oh my God, I would like to do this for as long as possible, which is basically what being uh, somebody who works in a university is and what it means. You just carry on doing homework <laughs> and asking questions and finding the right language with which to answer those questions. What is the most rewarding part of being an academic? Right now it's hard to think because I'm just in the middle of my marking period. Um, so I can tell you what the worst bit of being an academic is. That was the next question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, um, okay, so I'll save that up. The most rewarding bit is oh, meeting people like you. Largely you teach in large groups and you give lectures. But when you get to meet a person one-to-one -one and find out who they are, what they're interested in, what they need from you, that sort of, that's a puzzle. When you meet a person, it's like a puzzle. You have to work out what you can give to them that would help them and what they're seeking from you and how best to, to deliver that. That stuff is the most interesting. And all students, sometimes you look very similar. Sometimes you all wear the same kind of Topshop outfits or, I don't know, um, white trainers is a thing I've noticed recently amongst my male students. Sometimes you look the same but you're all really profoundly and curiously different. So that's the best bit, yeah. And the most challenging part? So challenging is a very diplomatic way of putting it, Zaid. Yeah. I think the most um, kind of frustrating and um, um, boring part of teaching is probably marking. Of course, some people like you, I'm sure, produce the most brilliant and scintillating work. Yeah, <laughs> I have to say to faith that that's you, but, um, the amount of marking that you have to do and um, that can be a real slog, yeah. yeah. So um, you focus a lot on romanticism, so how did you get engrossed into that topic? So you see my title is Lecturer in Romanticism, um, which often people think is quite a nice title to have because they think it means that you're going to be into love or romance and I'm not really, romanticism refers to a period um, uh, between around 1780, we say, to around 1830, where lots of poets were writing about particular themes, um, sometimes to do with love, but often to do with landscape and um, feeling uh, and revolution. Um, and I started reading ro the Romantic Poets 
when I was about 13 or 14, I think one of my teachers gave me an illustrated copy of the Romantics as a prize for an essay competition. And I just fell in a romantic way with a little uh, head over heels in love with Keats and Shelley and Byron. So yeah, probably when I was about 13 or 14 when I had a great teacher. So are there any figures in Romanticism that appeal to you today, that inspire you? So I wrote my PhD, uh, the piece of research that allowed me to become an academic, uh, on a poet called John Keats. Have you heard of Keats? No. Okay, so Keats is, um, well he's like you, he was a Londoner. Uh, I think he was uh, born in Moorgate actually. Um, he was known as a Cockney poet because he had an ever so slightly Cockney accent and he wasn't as grand as Byron or Shelley, some of the other big poets of the period. Um, but I wrote a PhD about Keats um, and I've always loved him because he's got a very sad story. His family members die off uh, one after another very early on in his life. Um, he nurses his brother, his brother, his brother gets TB um, and his brother is his best friend in the world and he has to nurse his brother. Um, and he has quite a difficult life, but and he trains to be a doctor, but realizes he really wants to be a poet, um, and so he starts writing um, and hanging out with other poets. Um, he writes lots of letters to his pals, and the letters are full of jokes. And they, he sounds like the kind of person you would want to be friends with. Still, I still read Keats, and I I find myself learning a lot from him. One of the things I learnt from him was friendship because he, he really values his friends um, and he helps you think about the nature of friendship and now you can go and find out about him. Yeah, I sure will. <laughs> All right. You also have a particular interest in researching about Islam and Arab culture so where did that kind of derive from and where's the interest in that come from? Uh, that came from my interest in Romanticism because Romanticism is certainly the Romantics that I've been talking to you about are largely English or Scottish, they're, they're sort of British based. Um, they're white European men, largely as well. So when I was when I was reading the Romantics, I was um, trying to think about what was un unusual about their thinking. And one of the things I noticed was that although we think that Romantic writing is mostly about the Lake District or London, the great Romantic poets like Blake write about London, for instance. It also seemed to me that they were imagining the world. So, so much of that work is also a fantasy about what India was like or what um, the Ottoman Empire, what Turkey was like. And in fact, the, the Romantic poet Byron was writing these things called the Eastern Tales. And he travelled to Turkey and Albania and hung out with the Ali Pasha. And um, if you ever read his poem, The Jawa, he says things like Bismillah and Allah. And my parents were Muslims, are Muslims. And so I recognise that language. And it was really strange to me that these people writing in the 18th and 19th century were trying to learn bits of Arabic and infusing or or kind of entwining their Eastern interests in Romantic poetry. And one of the things I realised was that in that period, as, as, the, as the Romantics are writing, the Arabian Nights, the Arabian Nights stories, are being translated from the original Arabic into French and English, and people go wild about them in the 18th and 19th centuries. And so Keats, Coleridge, Blake, all of those Romantic poets are, are completely steeped in that material. And it became really interesting to me that you could have something that seems so British, like Romanticism, but actually find out that inside it, there is this worldly interest in Islam and Arabian culture. And I could see how that was influencing their work. Isn't that interesting? I think yeah, it's it is quite interesting. Yeah. Because that's my religion. 
So it appeals to me a lot. I love learning about the history of Islam because like every day when you're praying, you know, it all derives from the history of Islam, from the Prophet Muhammad um, and that lineage. So I'd say that's very interesting for me. And there is a lot behind Islam. There's a lot to learn and it's very interesting. Yeah. Well, it, well the weird thing for me was realising um, that, that it wasn't just my history, that, that it was happening in Britain in the 18th and 19th century, that it was permeating this culture and that other people were finding out about it. So, and that it has a, has a place in this country in, in, this, in this particular way. That was really interesting to me. Are you currently in the process of making any more books in the future? Yeah, so I'm writing this book called, um, uh, it's, it's, it's about uh, the philosophy of dress. I'm sort of arguing at the moment in my head about what it's going to be called. There'll be a surprise, Zaid, mm -hmm. you can look out for it. I'll send you a copy because I'm quite impressed by your white trainers. So um, I feel like you'd be a good reader for it. Um, so that, because I said, is about thinking philosophically about the lived experience of clothes. I don't mention sparkling white trainers, but I do talk about Nike Magista um, football boots. Have you ever seen those? Yeah, I've heard of them. You know, yeah, and they're like these, well, the ones I've seen are luminous yellow, mm -hmm. and they've got like a sock that's sewn into the trainer. Yeah, yeah and um, Ronaldo wore them, I think, at the last World Cup, and I became really interested in why you would have a sock sewed into your trainer and all the, the engineering that goes into a training shoe. And it occurred to me that shoes are about about the ways that we want to move through the world. And some of us want to leap as far as we can or control a football as closely as possible or to move as fast as possible. Um, and so I talk about that Nike Magista football boot. I've, I had to go and try one on at the Nike shop. Yeah. I think they didn't expect me to be a regular Nike customer, but yeah. uh, it was quite fun. To students in year 12 studying A-levels in general, um, is there any advice you can give them as they prepare to take their exams next year? Yeah, I can. I can, I can totally remember doing exams. Yeah, I think um, most of us can remember taking exams, actually. Um, I, I, my advice is um, that I think there are lots of places and people you can ask about revision technique and kind of strategies, but my advice is really basic, and it is um, in the exam hall take off your shoes yeah make yourself comfortable that's what I mean by that when I when I took exams I remember just always feeling a bit stiff and I remember taking off my shoes and like you know sitting comfortably at my desk and getting ready to write my essay and what I mean by that I mean you don't have to take off your shoes if you don't want to but that was how I made myself feel comfortable and what I mean by saying take off your shoes is grab the exam by the scruff of the neck and make it say the things you want to say. So don't just answer the question as though it was an obligation, but take it as an opportunity to show off all the things you know, all the interesting thoughts you've had, um, and say the things you've wanted to say. Take it as an opportunity. Make yourself comfortable and take it as an opportunity. Um, and if you um, could set yourself any like personal goals and aims for this year, what would your goals and aims be? God, this is like therapy. This is really good. You're like a life coach. This is this is very good. My personal goals are to finish this book, which I've been writing for a long time, um, and um, to 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 be a good teacher. I think um, lots of us we've been teaching for so many years that you fall into you you become very um, uh, complacent and you're busy and stressed and you don't always have time to attend to each student as they need and they want you to. So I'm trying to be more attentive to each individual student 
because um, I think it, make, it made a difference to me when I was studying that a grown-up person gave me particular attention and care and responded to my thoughts. So that's what I'm trying to do this year. What are your goals this year? Well, my goals, I got UCAS exams in like two, three months. So obviously get the best grades possible in my UCAS exam um, and learn more, like try to discover more about what I want to do in the future, what universities I want to um, go to, what I want to specifically study. These are the things that like concern my future and I really want to like um, get them fixed so I can focus on like achieving them. God, you're so much more focused than I was. It's very impressive. But obviously that question about where you're going to apply for university is already decided now. You've visited Queen Mary and you've talked to me. That's done, right? That one. <laughs> we'll see. No comment. <laughs> so, yeah, that concludes the interview. It's been a pleasure interviewing you. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm sure people listening have learned a lot too. So thank you for your time. Thanks for coming. It's been lovely meeting you. We've just left the um, Queen Mary's University after interviewing Dr. Shahida Bari. We're back onto the main roads of Myland, and it is quite late now. There's a lot of cars around. Um, but yeah, it was a brilliant experience, and we learned a lot from the interview. I'll say just speaking to academic itself, the idea that I just did that, is, um, it, sticks, it sticks out in my mind because academically, I really respect people, that they provide so much information to others, and to have interviewed one is a unique experience. The thing that stuck out in my mind is the advice she gave for A-level students about getting comfortable in the exam hall, about taking your shoes off in the exam hall. It's like quite an odd thing to hear, but it's actually, it does make a lot of sense to you when you think of it. In exams, like a lot of us, we just sweat in our blazers and stuff, and like it makes the situation worse, but we should actually um, become comfortable in our exam situation to get the best ideas out of our heads. Speaking to an academic, it does give me more of a sense about life at university. Um, you look into things much more deeply. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, like, emphasis on the academic side of things. So I can see the difference between like a sixth form where it's a casual environment to a university where there's things that are more, much more specific. After speaking to Shahida, um, she did speak about like, how many like, books there are in the university's libraries to explore. And because I'm into reading and stuff, um, I'd be interested in exploring the libraries and seeing like, the breadth of books there, um, the different ranges of books. And I know there's a lot, there's more than one library as well, so that's quite an interesting process of uh, prospect as well. When she talked about Keats, um, it stuck out in my head because he talked about ideas like, about friendship, love, um, and these ideas are relevant to, like, in today's world. So. Um, I'm going to definitely research him when I get home and see what about him influenced her. Next, you'll be hearing from our admissions agony aunts, Anne-Marie and Paul. Anne-Marie and Paul both work at King's College London in the admissions department. Paul is the director of admissions and Anne-Marie is director of widening participation. They'll be answering questions that you've sent in about applying to university. This week we're going to be talking about careers and employability both during your time at university and afterwards. Okay Paul I'll kick off with the first question. A student has asked should you still go to university if you don't know what you want to be? The most important thing to remember is that at least 50% of graduates go into an area of work afterwards that isn't linked to their degree program so there are a relatively small number of areas where you do a degree in medicine and you're likely to become a doctor. So actually there are many more degrees where actually it's the skills that you develop that are going to then give you good transferable skills to go into the graduate labour market and get a really good job. 
So I think the key thing when you're applying to university is to think carefully about the degree at hand and why you're going to enjoy it. The great thing is when you're at university, there's a career service which is much more geared up than perhaps your school or college one is. This is perhaps a group of eight, 10, 12 professionals who are aimed at supporting our students into the world of work. So actually they're gonna be able to help you find your way, narrow down your choices and work out exactly what you want to be. And I think the other thing to say is that unlike my mum and dad who kind of had one career, they were in one sector, in one job and worked their way through that. Actually, our graduates nowadays, they're having five, six, seven different jobs and maybe different mini careers working in different sectors in different areas throughout their overall lifetime. So it's not so set in stone as it might have been 15, 20, 30 years ago. I think what I'd like to say is that it's okay if you don't know what you want to be. Um, lots of people don't know what they want to be uh, in terms of a job when they enter the labour market. That's not rare, lots of people feel like that. And actually university is a really fantastic way to explore what you might want to be. It opens many doors, there are many things that you can explore whilst you're a student. Now if university isn't for you, and it isn't for everyone, there's a whole range of other routes that you might like to explore. Um, you could do an apprenticeship, there are also school leaver schemes. So these are jobs uh, where companies will recruit directly um, from students who are leaving school at sixth form or at GCSE. Increasingly there are different types of degrees available as well. So um, lots of universities are now launching degree apprenticeships and that's where you'll be doing your degree but also working throughout it as well. So linked into that Anne-Marie, we've got a question here from a student about how long can you spend studying at university? Yeah, so there's a whole range of degrees that are available to students and, and they all last um, differing amounts of time actually. So first of all we have foundation degrees that are available and they sort of happen before your first undergraduate degree. They help you to get to grips um, with uh, learning in higher education and help you to progress through to an undergraduate degree. So an undergrad degree lasts for um, between two, three and four years um, sometimes um, and you can then bolster that and do something called a master's degree. Usually that lasts for one year if you're studying it full time or it could last for two years if you're studying it part-time. Now let's say you're really fantastic, you're a great student, you're really enjoying learning uh, and you'd like to research something very unique um, that will help uh, to expand the knowledge of humankind, you can go on and do a PhD. And when you do a PhD that means you'll become a doctor. Now to do a PhD that can take quite a long time, can take three years, four years, maybe even five years. So for someone who's going all the way through the system, it might be that they're at university for up to 10 years potentially. But for the most part, most students are going to university, doing an undergraduate degree and leaving after three years. And the great thing of course now with the government is that there's now student funding and student loans available for undergraduate, postgraduate taught, master's degrees and PhDs. So students can follow their dream and go all the way through if they want. A question here from a student about, about what options there are to work whilst you're doing your degree. So as a student, you have lots of skills that will be in demand um, from different employers in different types of jobs. So you can work alongside your studies. Now I think it's important that you don't work too much because if you do that, you could potentially compromise your studies. So most students will work up to a maximum of 15 hours a week. 
Now I think if you can get some part-time work that really helps you to develop your employability skills, you're winning on both fronts because you're getting paid and you're uh, proving to your future employer uh, how good an employee you might be. So see if you can pick up work as something like a student ambassador uh, where you'll be developing skills like engaging with people, doing public speaking, but there'll also be jobs outside of the campus as well. So it might be that you're able to get some part-time work with a local company. Um, think no matter what job you get though, what skills are you developing? So constantly be reflecting on what you're learning from your working experiences and how they're helping you to be a good professional once you graduate. I mean, one of the things lots of students choose to do is they apply for internships, and these usually take place over the summer period. It's important that you understand when the deadlines for the internships actually are, because they happen quite early in your academic career. So if you are interested in doing that, maybe getting a good few weeks, maybe a couple of months in your chosen um, field uh, in terms of professional uh, sort of area that you want to specialise in, make sure you're aware of the deadlines because every year I meet students who've missed out on the opportunity to apply. The other thing is to look at the companies that you're applying for. In some ways it's a bit like universities and applying for UCAS, isn't it? Everyone looks to the Oxbridges, the Russell Groups, those blue chip firms and everyone applies for the same set of internships, you know, whether it be in lawyers and bankers etc. But they all apply for the same 10 or 15 firms. One of my bits of advice is to look for the internships with perhaps smaller, more local firms who actually may support you just as well, often provide you with paid internships and perhaps you're not competing with 1500 other people from every other Russell Group uh, or university in the country and I think it's a bonus if you can get an internship but it's certainly not something that's an absolute uh, prerequisite. So don't, if students don't get one they shouldn't panic that they're going to be the only person without an internship. Yeah and there are loads of incredible ways to get experience, it's not just about working. Very often the things you're doing in extracurricular um, time can be just as valuable. It might be that you're volunteering, that's another great way to pick up experiences and employability skills. Think about the learning you can get out of all the different things you're doing during your time at university. So how did you come to decide what you wanted to do in your career? What, what support did you get from your university and how did graduates go about you know, making those first steps into the world of work? Yeah, so, so when you're at university, career support starts relatively early on. You can go um, even from the first day and start talking to them about your aspirations or talking to them about starting to explore what might be available. They will run workshops, they will run employer fairs, um, they will run um, CV review sessions. They've got a whole range of things available to help you start picking your way through what you might like to do. And is there any pressure to go on and do some job that earns you hundreds of thousands of pounds? You know, what happens if that's not your motivation and you just want to do something you love as a job? Is there any pressure to go into those fields? No, the university is here to really help you um, get to the job that you like to do. We just want you to um, do something that you're enjoying, do something that is fulfilling your aims uh, and we'll help you to do that. And I think one of the things that when I talk to students, the, the, the real thing is you do have this debt following you after university. Sometimes it's a big worry about going into the first job that you can find. And again, I think a bit like um, you know, when you're at university, not taking the first job you get offered, but if you can, taking a little bit of time to make sure you're taking the right first step. But also realising that if you do start a graduate level job, you know, you're completely within your rights to move on and do a different area. And actually the first probably five years after graduation, 
collaboration are all about testing out different areas, trying different industries, trying different styles of job to find the right one for you. Flamory, we've got a question from a student here. Are you guaranteed a job as a graduate or you know, is it more to it than that? Whether you get a job after graduating is down to you as an individual as well as the education and the support you've had at university. And that's why throughout this um, sort of episode we've been talking about all the things you can do to make yourself as employable as possible. The one thing that is very clear is that it's not just about getting a degree, it's about the things you do outside of that as well. And that's what really helps you to stand above the crowd when you're applying for jobs after university. Alright, so the last question, um, I wanted to ask you a university um, interview style question, so turn the tables <laughs> a bit. So I wanted to ask you, what exactly is involved in the process of blaming someone? Oh, wow. Um, ah, that's... Yeah, that's a tough question. This is really unfair because I'm going to be doing interviews on Saturday and I'm going to be really mean and here's you being mean to me. Um, I guess blame is about... So a philosopher would ask about responsibility, right? Blame is about attributing responsibility. Um, so your question, so the questions underpinning um, blame are about not just who is responsible but for what and whether the particular thing that one is being blamed for is itself something that warrants responsibility. Um, that's a really evasive question but what I mean by that is that sometimes I think there are things that um, are not about blame um, and uh, when we try to blame people for things or blame a country for going to war or blame, I don't know, a certain percentage of the population for voting a particular way. It's sometimes a way of um, uh, not, n not addressing a certain injustice or a certain um, anxiety. And I think um, it's not always about blame, sometimes it's about understanding. Yeah. And I think blame is not always the most productive way to, this is something to a very serious question and answer, but blame isn't always productive. Sometimes when we hold someone responsible for something, it's a way of, um, of closing a discussion or making our, alleviating our own anxieties. But sometimes maybe it's not about blame, maybe we're derailed into thinking about blame and we could instead be thinking about something differently. That's a really philosophically minded evasive answer. Yeah, what would be your answer to that? Involved in the process of blaming someone. Yeah. It wouldn't be as like deep as yours. Um, I'll just say when you're blaming someone, it's like um, you're making a choice over who to give like the responsibility of the blame to. Um, sometimes it can be like irrational because like you just want to you want to transfer the blame quickly. Um, but sometimes it can be thought. But yeah. I'd have to research more about that one. But I think that's a really good question. answer. You're in. Yeah. <laughs> that was the last episode in the Uni Talks series. To listen to all eight episodes, head to iaitv podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, there are hundreds of talks and debates available at iaitv. Good luck with your applications. This was the last episode of Uni Talks. We hope you enjoyed the series, which was created by the Institute of Art and Ideas in association with the Brilliant Club and King's College London. Uni Talks is produced by Bridie Edison Child, Irene Carter, and Hannah Renton at the IAI, 
with editing on this episode by Irene, and help from Anna Crisp, Helena Berry, George Buston, and Genevieve Marciniak, and from the Brilliant Club, Michael Savinsky, Jordana Knight, and Jade Hanley. Thanks for listening.